This is our Barrow, episode number eight. And me and Alex Wright are joined by Roger Didna. And the very special thing about this episode is this episode of our Barrow is taking place in an actual Barrow. So this is the Barrow that our podcast was named after because we wanted to make our own Barrow, a metaphorical Barrow, as you will, the podcast. But the man joining us today built the original Fintorn Barrow. Roger, can you tell us about the barrel that we now find ourselves in? I can, but I think I owe it to you and uh, our listeners to indicate that my name, my last name was actually pronounced Doudna. Oops, sorry. Even though it looks like a Doudna, but it's it actually is pronounced Doudna, at least by the Doudnas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the story of this barrel is um, essentially as long as a piece of string, but I'll condense it for you. Um, I was asked by then focalizer of Foundation of the Foundation Core Group, a man called Francois Duquesne, in 1981, as I recall, if I would do a conference that would set the stage for buying the caravan park. Um, by that stage, the foundation had decided that it was tired of throwing good money after bad in terms of trying to maintain a facility that was going downhill a bit, um, and it was time to um, to buy the caravan park. So um, I did put together a conference called Building a Planetary Village. I did that in conjunction with both John Talbot and uh, Alan Watson, as I recall. Um, and it happened in October of 82. Um, it went very well. It did set the scene for buying the caravan park the following year. Um, um, about two-thirds of the purchase price, as I recall, came from donations from our global network of supporters, mostly uh, in, you know, small amounts, but they did so in response to a personalized letter that Eileen Caddy signed and went out to our global network of supporters. Um, I then spent 1984 in America um, working on a political campaign um, and came back here in October of 84 for a conference called the New Economic Agenda, which was the first time that Jonathan Porritt appeared at Findhorn. Um, anyway, um, I was rather dismayed to learn upon my return uh, that although we did buy the caravan park and did so under the promise that we wanted to convert the caravan park into what we what were then called a planetary village, a place that lives its life as if the planet is its ultimate address and responding to the needs accordingly, um, to um, uh, we changed the name ultimately from planetary village to uh, eco village. But as I say, but I came back not. Although we bought the caravan park, we hadn't done anything 
to actually convert it. Um, so in January of 1985, as I recall, I and my neighbor, now neighbor, Craig Gibson, went to um, Kregeliki, to a place called Speyside Cooperage. Um, and Speyside Cooperage had been providing me with free firewood, from basically old oak staves, which they had tons of surplus. Um, and we went over to get some firewood, and he took me aside, took us aside, actually, and showed us these six... Um, six vessels which they had just removed from a distillery in Fife and they didn't know what to do with them. I think they were intending intending to send them to a veneer factory but they were these beautiful not free K-N-O-T free um, pieces of Oregon pine that uh, were you know just exquisite wood and they thought that I was sufficiently eccentric that I might find a use for them. Well, I said, thank you, but no thank you, because I didn't know what I would do with them. But practically as I was driving away, possibilities began to suggest themselves. At that time, uh, we were planning to put an extension on the community center, uh, and we were also planning our own Steiner School. And Steiner, as you may or may not know, uh, actually calls for organic shapes rather than boxes, um, feeling as though that affects the creativity and well-being of, of kids who are educated in, in, in them. But I couldn't sell parents on, on whiskey barrels. Mm. <laughs> um, they were all, uh, you know, they just thought it was a bad example. So it basically fell to me to take the first step. This is a long. This is the long version, unfortunately. But anyway, so I took the first step. In um, when was it? It would have been in. Um, I think it. I think I started in 1986, because it did take me quite a long time to persuade the community, my own community, of the viability of this idea. Mm. In contrast, it took it took about six weeks to um, get the support of Murray Council hmm. and the planning authorities. It took six months to persuade my community that this mm -hmm. was a good idea. <laughs> uh, but when I did finally persuade them, um, you know, the consensus factor kicked in, and they gave me lots of support in terms of, you know, builders and and material access to materials and tools and so forth. So I began in 1986, and I moved in in Easter of 1987. And since that time, obviously, it's attracted quite a lot of uh, attention, um, both from locals who, who improbably liked it because it was seen as being a, a celebration of the local vernacular. <laughs> um, uh, but also by the by media. So I had my 15 minutes of fame. I think it was in the winter of uh, Christmas time of uh, 1987. 
when, as fate would have it, I was actually in America visiting my parents. <laughs> <laughs> you missed the newspaper photos. <laughs> no, I got the newspaper photos. I was in virtually every paper in the country <laughs> with all kinds of things like Daffy Doc lives in a vat <laughs> and such like. <laughs> but um, I missed most of it. Apparently, they wanted, someone was actually pursuing me for a, a TV interview, but I, I wasn't in the country, so I, I missed that one. Mm. But I had my, so I had, I had my dose of fame. That was pleasant for a while. And before you moved here, you were a philosophy professor in America. I've always wondered: Have you taken any inspiration from um, the Greek philosopher, the nature-loving philosopher who lived in a barrow, Diogenes? Have I taken inspiration? <laughs> I consider myself a reincarnation. <laughs> Diogenes. If you ask people around here, they say, yeah, he's a cynic, as was Diogenes. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I, I was aware of, of, shall we say, of the history <laughs> of living in a barrel. <laughs> a long tradition. <laughs> you know, there's a great story told about uh, Diogenes. Apparently, he was visited at one point by um, Alexander the Great. And uh, Alexander allegedly asked him if there was anything that he, he, could, he could do for him. And Diogenes' reply was, could you step out of the light? <laughs> <laughs> and that could have been the death of him, but I think Alexander was impressed at that. <laughs> I think he was, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us about your philosophy career and what led you from being a professor to coming here and leaving that career? Okay. So, my undergraduate degree was in... Um, both in international relations and philosophy. And my graduate career was primarily focused on aesthetics. I had, I spent a year in Paris in 1963-4, I think it was, uh, on a Fulbright Fellowship, on a philosophy fellowship. But I spent a year frequenting Parisian cinemas because my aspiration was to become a filmmaker. And the world cinema was on display every day mm. uh, between the two cinematheques and the, the multiple uh, you know, cinemas on the left bank particularly, for, which you could get into for like, well, between 20 cents, 30 cents, 40 cents, 50 cents. Mm, it was really incredibly <laughs> cheap, incredibly cheap. Um, so I spent the year, um, as I say, preparing myself to go to film school. Um, but then when I returned to my native Kansas, well, where I had spent most of my time uh, and went to the University of Kansas, I, I, um, I struck up a romance that I had previously, uh, had previously broken my heart, actually when I was an undergraduate um, and the relationship got priority over, over the film career. So I did my PhD um, 
primarily with the question of what, uh, looking at the question of, of truth and art. What is what? What can we say about whatever kind of truth it is that art conveys? And it's a really tricky issue. As you may or may not recall, Plato actually threw um, poets out of his ideal republic because he felt that they were doing imitations of life itself, which is itself an imitation of the truth. So you know, they were thrice removed from the truth. And in contrast, his pupil Aristotle said, well, yeah, I don't know about that, but you know, whatever they do, it seems to me that they are, they evoke catharsis, which is a kind of cleansing of the soul. And his speculation was that he did so because, um, you know, they was presenting something about life that was informative, instructive, and 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 deep. Anyway, I wrestled with those kind of questions for my the duration of my dissertation, and uh, finally finished. And upon completing, I made a beeline for California. Um, Aston was doing a program on on human consciousness, human consciousness explorations, maps, and models, which basically was a parade of the innovative thinkers and practitioners in the Bay Area at that point in time in San Francisco Bay Area. And out of that workshop or seminar, six-week seminar, I managed to make friends with a guy who was teaching at San Francisco State University in the Broadcast Communication Arts Department. And um, I managed to get his job while he was doing a sabbatical year. And that turned into... Um, an opportunity basically to check out what was happening in the Bay Area. So in addition to teaching some uh, writing courses, uh, basically, basically teaching kids to write commercials, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was I, they gave me a graduate seminar in um, para, what was called paracommunications. Paracommunications being to communications what parapsychology is to psychology namely considerations of the extraordinary dimensions that are going on in communication. So while doing that, um, I went to a talk um, north, of, north of San Francisco, a place called Sonoma State, where a guy called John White talked about Finhorn for the first time. And he was talking about big veg as a tangible sign of the presence of God. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was it, it captured my imagination <laughs> such that when um, a group called the Lorians were doing a presentation uh, that in January of 1974, I went to it. It was in the it was in the Civic Auditorium of San Francisco. Allegedly, there was a comet that was passing and going to appear in the sky, which was going to herald, be a physical sign of the New Age, of the Aquarian Age, um, whatever. Uh, and it was it, it never appeared visibly in the sky in California, but it was an excuse for to get get all the all the uh, shall we say the new thinker types in, together mm -hmm. in the Civic Auditorium, a city block, four stories high filled with weirdos, <laughs> in the bowels of which were the Lorians, who weren't weird at all. And, you know, the, their entire presentation through song, story, and, and personal experience 
was uh, about Findhorn. Not about themselves, but about Findhorn. And um, um, I actually wept. Mm. Um, I felt like I, I discovered my tribe. And interestingly, my father was visiting me at the time. And he also saw what the impact was on me. Net effect, he supported my being here for the next 30, 40 years, which was itself quite remarkable and quite wonderful. So it was a definitely an experience of what I called divine intervention. Mm. But philosophy, um, important to say that uh, my only, I only taught philosophy while I was in graduate school. I think I taught ethics courses, um, mainly because my work was primarily in value theory, ethics and aesthetics and so forth, and political theory. Um, so I, I never actually taught philosophy professionally. I only taught uh, broadcast communication arts. <laughs> mm. And um, we used to go to a philosophy group together every so often on Fridays. Mm. Do you think philosophy applies to your life here? Do you think it comes in a lot here? Well, the question that most engaged me in my undergraduate years, actually, I took a course in political theory. In political theory, and the question that most engaged me was, um, you know, what is the good life? What does it look like? What's it, what, what? What are its features? We did a program. We did a, a, a couple of weeks on utopians, various various attempts to create utopia. Thomas Moore and other people. Well, indeed, Plato. The public is an ideal state. Um, so, um, you know, my experience of my initial experience of Inhorn certainly was that it was a kind of ideal state in miniature. Um, it was extremely energetic, uh, joyful well-organized. Um, it was a, you know, I, I felt it was a real opportunity to live in something like an ideal society. And that was the delight and the challenge. And um, another person that I know who inspires you a lot, who's also inspired me because of a book that I've borrowed from you, who I think has lived in many ways that sort of ideal good life perhaps we can say because of um, the, the many dimensions of their life, is James Hubble. And above us right now is stained glass, which I'm pretty sure is from James Hubble, yeah. And James Hubble has um, different stained glass installations around Fintorn. So there's the one at the Universal Hall front windows and then there's also the Firebird that was at the community centre that's going to be returned. But, I mean, the really amazing thing that I really love about James Hubble is he's a poet, he's a philosopher, he's built houses in a really sort of like Gaudi way and it's all about connection to nature, connection to God, connection to truth, living in a good way and expressing all of that in a really beautiful way. Um, maybe in a sort of platonic sense where the truth, beauty, goodness are all the same thing, are all the ideal form, and he's expressing that. 
Mm. Can you talk a bit about um, your connection to and your inspiration from James Hubble? Well, um, the Hubble connection is an interesting one. Um, I actually met James uh, because uh, a girlfriend of mine at the time, a Californian girlfriend, um, uh, had met him through her brother who had done a book about his work, Otto Regan. Um, a book called uh, From the Earth Up. I, it's right behind us on my bookshelf. Um, as you say, um, Hubble was, I think, inspired in large part by um, by Gaudi, the uh, Spanish architect, who did this wonderful cathedral, as well as a number of other really interesting and creative organic um, buildings in Barcelona primarily, but elsewhere in the world. Um, and Hubble... Uh, Hubble gets a lot of his inspiration by climbing a, a giant oak tree in his backyard <laughs> 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 and tuning in. <laughs> um, but wherever he gets his inspiration, you know, he he's a, he is a very um, well, he, he does beautiful organic shapes and translates them into build into buildings. Um, when I was asked to do that conference that I mentioned earlier, Building a Planetary Village. Um, I invited both Hubble and another California architect called Sim Vanderin, uh, who was kind of like the, the inventor of eco-architecture. You know, the idea that, you know, we could incorporate uh, a lot of ecological features into the actual houses and in so doing, you know, keep them warmer, make them healthier, uh, you reduce carbon emissions, all that sort of stuff. Um, and James and, and Sim jointly conducted um, what, they, what they called design charrettes, where essentially those of us who were interested in converting the caravan park would um, get together and you know dream into uh, what we wanted the caravan park to look like. Uh, unsurprisingly, um, a lot of circles and, and spirals appeared, mm. probably in reaction to, the, to living in, uh, you know, caravans, tin boxes, really. Um, so um, Hubble took all that all that feedback, went away and actually did a clay model design of what he thought would be an interesting cluster of houses. Um, and he, that was the centerpiece of the conference itself. Um, it evoked a lot of discussion, but was generally perceived to be out of keeping with the local vernacular mm. <laughs> and entirely too uh, California-esque to be appropriate for Scotland. Um, but by way of placating him uh, and particularly placating me, who was a devotee of this of this piece, um, they decided to um, do, use one of his designs in the in the in Universal Hall, which is one is there, and it's it's you know it's a very striking feature of the hall, happily. Um, and he's a you know he's a wonderful 
wonderfully humble man. I mean, he's, he's not he's not educated in any conventional sense, but he's totally at ease with all kinds of people, and particularly, you know, he just does wonderful design projects all over the world, including a citizen diplomacy initiative uh, where he's done a series of people's parks featuring beautiful works of art um, all the way around the Pacific as a way of trying to promote, you know, peace in our time. And the Firebird, of course, was a piece that um, came, that he donated to us. I think it was in 1988 when I did a conference on, on, uh, uh, on citizen diplomacy. We had gone to Russia I myself and uh, Finhorn Fellows and Finhorn Trustees went to uh, went to Russia in the, well when what was it it would have been the spring of 1988 and um, we did a conference following that that trip uh, promoting the whole idea of citizen diplomacy and particularly the idea of Russia becoming our friends rather than our perennial perennial enemy and. Um, James did just sent us this Firebird piece, which he as, as his contribution to sort of diplomacy. Mm. It was meant to go on to Russia, but unfortunately, the people who came from Russia, we didn't feel had the right requisite um, placement in Russian society to be able to guarantee that it would get prominent, uh, you know, exhibition. So we kept it here until with such time as some we could make the proper connections. And unfortunately, we became so fond of it, <laughs> we <never laughs> sent it forward. <laughs> and then, unfortunately, it went to, uh, it was burned in the fire, which was, which was, you know, a really tragic event from my point of view, because it was, you know, a bona fide, wonderful piece of art. And then when I put my sadness, wrote about my sadness in that respect, in I think the Rainbow Bridge, um, uh, uh, we received a prominent. We received a, a very substantial donation, actually, to uh, cover the cost of its uh, recreation. And I think I, I think I'm okay to say this. And actually, came from my ex-wife, <laughs> mm. which was really very beautiful and very wonderful and very touching from my point of view. And happily, uh, the Firebird, the new Firebird, is scheduled to arrive here next week. Next week, I never realized, and so apt as well that. It's a firebird, yeah. so it's the resurrection of the firebirds. So it's a bona fide phoenix, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> graduated <laughs> phoenix. <laughs> Good time to do this podcast then if it's coming next week. Yeah. Uh, is it, it going to be in the hall? Is it going to be on display somewhere or is it going to be stored until... Well, <laughs> where is it going to go? The next opportunity for the, for Finno and Process to get engaged. Um, uh, Graham Meltzer uh, was involved with putting it up in the CC in the first instance. And he's and I have both looked at possible sites. Um, it is most likely to go at Clooney. Um, and the dining room's a possibility. Uh, the lounge's a possibility. Uh, the beastry room's a possibility. But I, but I think the best option is probably going to be the sanctuary. Yeah, I think I'd assume the sanctuary or the new community center when it, it gets built. Well, it's designed for the new community yeah. center, and it will be featured in the new community center. But the new community center, unfortunately, is still years away. Mm. 
And you were talking a bit before about how even in the 80s you were thinking about how maybe communities could go towards being carbon neutral in terms of like architectural features and how things were built. Right now, um, we talked to John Talbot recently about Fintorn going carbon neutral. And I was talking to you the other day about how this could be such a wonderful thing for Fintorn if it could become really one of the first like modern communities on planet Earth that is carbon neutral while still, you know, having the technology of modern life. Can you tell us your role in that process? Uh, my role in that process was um, to, um, I did a series of conferences. I've actually done 10 conferences at Fintorn. Um, and, you know, in every case, it's about, it's, it's trying to identify some particular aspect of what we're doing that resonates with what's also happening, at least nascently out there. And they can sort of catalyze some kind of collaboration around, you know, stimulating that kind of stuff to, to happen further, both here and elsewhere. And in the course of doing those things, I became persuaded around the turn of the century that, that climate change was the real issue. The issue which contextualizes all the rest of them, really. Mm. And... Um, uh, I, I think I... Well, I, I I carried that awareness for a number of years before finally attracting a donation from one of, of the Findhorn Fellows, a man called Christopher Layton, uh, who, which made it possible for me to go to uh, to Paris in two thousand and fifteen for the event that um, that that produced the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement basically being uh, that the nations of the world should collectively work towards reducing their emissions so that global temperatures do not increase more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. Because beyond that point, it runs the risk of, of, of uh, triggering feedback loops, which will progressively aggravate situation in a way over which we no longer have control and essentially turn the earth into a fireball. Mm. Um, so uh, I came home from the, that event, uh, which in, incidentally I should say that um, I was, that, 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 that Gen International had organized a delegation to go to this, this event, and happily they made it possible for me to join them. Uh, and I actually did, I was there in, in, in company with three other Findhorn fellows, Albert Bates, Rob Wheeler, and um, Paul Allen from CAT. And we were all sharing a, a, a flat in a cheap hotel in Paris. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it was wonderful to, to, to be in Paris again, because I was there when I was in my youth. But it was particularly wonderful that it produced that wonderful agreement. 195 countries of the world signed up mm. to do this collaborative thing. Well, obviously, um, they signed up before they realized just how complicated that was going to be and, um, and how challenging it was going to be. So... 
uh, when I came back from from that that event in 2015, I was having a chat with a man called Joran Wiegland, who it turns out is a professional sustainability consultant in Stockholm, uh, but who is also married to one of our members here and has a home on the Field of Dreams. And um, when I asked him if we could possibly do a, a, a footprint assessment of the community, he said, yes, I could do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it kind of it kind of unfolded from there. We've, we've done a, a total of five such assessments since 2015. We didn't do the COVID years because basically nobody was traveling. Um, but we just finished uh, our report of 2022, uh, and we got a grant to do that from the National Lottery, and we just recently produced a wonderful report um, on the basis of which we now have to go out, I have to go out and try to find the money to, um, to put the fine details in that plan and also to carry on doing the kind of footprint studies, footprint assessments that we've been doing so that we can progressively measure um, our commitment. And of course, the wonderful thing from my point of view is that, you know, after doing a lot of prep work and gathering a lot of emissions data, uh, the community actually decided to embrace and endorse the intention to become carbon neutral by, by 2032, actually, and to become fully carbon neutral by 2045, which resonates with the Scottish government's intention to become carbon neutral by 2045. Uh, the UK government by 2050. And indeed, our own Murray Council has also in declared their intention to make their own operations carbon neutral by 2030 as well. So everybody understands that this is the name of the game. Mm. And then the question becomes, well, who's going to actually pull it off? And that remains to be seen. Mm. Because, you know, we've discovered that carbon... Producing carbon emissions is integral to virtually everything we do. Eating, heating, driving, particularly flying. Um, in fact, flying virtually dwarfs all, all the rest of it, amazingly. Um, and But we have got an agreement from the Finthorn Foundation to, uh, to, to work with us to that end. Uh, continuing to provide us with emissions from their operations and likewise from the businesses in the park. So we've got a commitment to f embrace and endorse the intention. What we do with it and how we realize it is what remains to be seen. Mm. And you've for a long time been a part of dreaming of the future of Intern. So way back in the 80s, like your imagination like of the Barrow House, for instance. You've seen a lot of changes happen here. But from now, where you stand here in 2023, what's the ideal future that you imagine is possible for Fintorn? Well, as I'm sure you're aware, that question is very much up at the moment, and it's not clear where we're going to go or how we're going to get there, primarily because COVID really um, 
almost destroyed, I would say, the Finnhorn Foundation and its programs. Um, and indeed, Finnhorn is not unique in that respect. I mean, virtually all of these uh, new consciousness personal growth centers, both here and the United States, are all severely challenged by the fact that, you know, people, people's inclination to travel has been significantly undermined by, by the prevalence of COVID. And indeed, I think someone caught COVID in an experience week just a week or so ago. Um, so that kind of thing has really significantly affected our guest numbers, which is, which is how the foundation survives financially. Um, and I would say that their future, that the foundation, all of our futures are basically up in the air at the moment because we don't know how it's going to play. But we do know that the foundation's sense of its future depends upon um, its guest programs, both residential and online. And that's where its attention is primarily focused at the moment, causing a retrenchment, at least for the present time, at Clooney, um, which, of course, reopens the question as to what's going to happen at the park. And we don't know the answer to that yet. What we do know is that they're prepared to, the foundation's prepared to um, lease, I think it is, uh, several of their, um, their building assets to make them available to the community, the residential community here at the park. Um, there are other people, like Michael Shaw, who feels like, um, you know, we're headed for serious changes and uh, we should be preparing ourselves for deep adaptation, what he calls, what he and someone called, a guy called Jim Bendel calls deep adaptation. You know, but basically become relocalized, become as, in, as self-reliant as possible uh, and cut ourselves off from depending upon, you know, um, guest numbers from out with and beyond. Um, Couldn't you say that that was the whole point all along? I mean, in, in a way, there's a kind of deep irony relying on people traveling by plane, which you said is the one of the biggest creation of, of carbon on the planet in order to sustain an eco-village. So yeah. in, in a way, it, it's maybe a good change, you know, having to become sustainable. It may well be uh, God's way of trying to get through to us. Well, <laughs> <laughs> resolving that slight contradiction. <laughs> um, we'll see. I mean, I, I, I personally think that, I mean, you may or may not have noticed a poster, a faded poster on my front door, which says sustainability the final frontier. And I think that is still the case. I mean, sustainability is still the challenge. And sustainability entails the ability to pay the bills. But um, to a large extent, I think people view the sustainability agenda as being kind of like putting on a hair shirt, you know, becoming, living, reducing our needs, um, curtailing our all of our eating, flying, eating, eating and driving. Um, and my 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 fantasy is that 
um, we can both do it and do it in a way that improves our quality of life. Mm. Um, and happily, there are other people who see the same possibility, particularly some people in California who put together a program called Cool Cities, um, in which they essentially rely upon the power of community as generated by just simply meeting your neighbors and agreeing with your neighbors that you will do stuff, you will take actions that will, you know, both make you more resilient and also make you more carbon uh, responsible mm. and cut. And, and in so doing, actually cut your carbon footprints. As I understand it, the UN projects that if we are going to have a prayer of keeping global temperature rises to below 1.5 degrees Celsius, it, you know, about 25% of that process will entail behavior change. And, you know, nobody wants to have their change their behavior to save the world. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult sell. But on the other hand, if you can do it in a way that actually is, that, that demonstrably improves your quality of life, then maybe. We'll see. And to kind of put it back to when you build this barrel, you know, it was kind of like a symbol of the beginning of this whole eco-village movement. What was the awareness of that, that uh, awareness of the potential disaster of, of uh, around climate change at that point? I mean, we're kind of sitting in... Not, nothing, not at all. I mean, I mean... You know, I think I think Finhorn is a visionary community. It's a community of vision, so it's a capacity where people have a capacity to see more clearly. Um, and you know, the eco imperative emerged. I would say, predominantly in the eighties, not before. I mean. It wasn't at all a feature in while we were building the hall, for example, and we did we were building the hall for virtually the entirety of the seventies, and we didn't finish it until early eighty. I think it was eighty eighty three for the World Wilderness Congress. Um, and at that point in time, you know, ecological awareness was primarily confined to uh, conservative types who wanted to preserve wilderness areas or who wanted to basically preserve you know, elephants and hippos and such like. It was a very conservative movement. Um, but then, as climate, with climate change, it became apparent that it was, it, you know, entailed the whole thing. And, 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 you know, I think initially it was simply about replacing caravans with, with, with attractive, cozy, warm um, houses. Um, and thereby curtailing the enormous amounts we were spending on coal, <laughs> mm. <laughs> gas, uh, as well as wood. And that wood was perceived as being the kind of solution to a large, large extent until it too was proclaimed to be an uneco. Well, now <laughs> in England, they're looking at banning it outright, aren't they? They are, so because it, I guess because, because apparently it affects... Um, well, it, it involves an emission factor. It also pollutes the air. It even it even pollutes your house apparently and our lungs and yeah you you yeah, pollute your lungs in in that in the place where you're burning it apparently never I've never noticed that I've never had any never had any problem with that but apparently it's true so 
Yeah, so I mean, it basically means we have to go electric more or less across the board. But I did see an interesting piece this morning. Uh, uh, I get these, I get a newsletter from something called the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, which monitors uh, press reports on eco themes. And one of this morning's pieces was about that was that it is perceived that we can beef up the grid enough to do all that we're asking of it in terms of charging cars, running heat pumps, providing heat, and so forth. I mean, it's possible, but it will entail significant refocusing of attention on, on the task at hand. Do you, do you agree with Elon Musk's plan to have a kind of planet B and, and, and set up colonies on Mars, or just in case this one fails? I just think that's all we need tunes. I, I just don't, I don't understand how they can even begin. <laughs> I mean, you might be able to send up a, a cluster of, what, 25, 30 people, something like that. But, I mean, it just seems to me just outrageously stupid. You know, the task has got to be <laughs> mm. how we make it, <laughs> this planet, which is gorgeous planet, it's lovely day. <laughs> That's how do we preserve and keep this intact. It's much more sensible and much more doable. Mm. I just think that's the... I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, you, what you, the, the the primary benefit surely of of all the space activity is primarily just the communication stuff, and the fact that we've all got phones that can, which are mini computers, which can put us in touch with anybody in the world. I mean, that, that's pretty impressive. That is impressive. I can remember back when I was hanging out with futurists. <clears throat> One of my friends, who was a very prominent futurist foresaw the day when we would all wear watches, which would basically, you know, put keep us in touch with the world, do what phones now do. But the phones do it. The phone has basically realized that vision of being in touch with the whole world. And having a computer in your hands where you can carry around and fiddle with endlessly. <laughs> but it's, you know, it, that's, that's a remarkable achievement. But the idea of colonies on Mars or further afield... Yeah, I'm not there. I'm not where my attention rests. <laughs> to bring it to this planet and the idea of planetary consciousness, um, you talked before about Fintorn being a planetary village, and you've mentioned a few times the UN, the United Nations. And I guess um, the thing about the UN is they're at the forefront of international relations on this planet. And you yourself studied international relations at quite a deep level. Um, once you've told me that there's people that see the UN as being a planetary ashram, and I was really fascinated by that idea because I hadn't really thought about the UN from a spiritual aspect before. Um, but I'd like to ask you, um, what's your connection with the UN? What's Fintorn's connection with the UN? And also, if you think the UN as an organization is going in a positive direction for the planet and doing what has to be done? Well, um, it's interesting, that story, I must say. Um, I, think, I think the UN connection derives from the, the the work of the Lucis Trust, the Alice Bailey 
crowd um, because they they do perceive um, the UN as being essentially a spiritual organization, uh, kind of the, the higher self of humanity, so to speak. And as you may or may not know, the Lucis Trust teachings, Alice Bailey stuff, was very, very much prevalent when I came here in the 70s. Um, David Spangler used that kind of language in a lot of his talks. Um, we had people here who had worked uh, directly with Lucis Trust in America, um, a guy named Gordon Davidson. Um, and, you know, it, 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 we perceived, we also had a man named um, Donald Keyes who uh, had an office. He created an organization called Planetary Citizens. And his eye, all, the whole point of Planetary Citizens was to, was to issue uh, passports, planetary passports, that you could buy and use when you were traveling to try to raise the consciousness beyond that of the nation-state system. Uh, and and in some countries would actually accept them. Mm. Not all, but some. And it was kind of a consciousness-raising device. But anyway, that Donald Keyes came here virtually every year during the 70s at least to give us an update on what was happening at the UN, his sense of what was happening at the UN. And what made that particularly interesting was that he actually wrote speeches for UN ambassadors who would approach him to perform that service. And he was, of course, injecting all kinds of spiritual perspectives into those talks. He was also very close to a spiritual teacher called Sri Chinmoy, uh, who was... Um, who also had kind of an ashram uh, in the immediate environs of, of, the, uh, of the UN. There's all kinds of um, church-related or, or spiritual-related groups that work in the, uh, around the UN. There's a building right across the street from the actual UN building which is like 10 stories high, filled with these kind of groups, of which Planetary Citizens was one. And I actually worked with Donald Keyes for, I think it was summer, back in the 70s or 80s, uh, to try to get some sense about what he was on about um, and what kind of work he was doing. Yeah, so it's in general terms, I think it is perceived as being, you know, humanity's higher self. And I especially must say that I really appreciate this current uh, Antonio Gutierrez. You know, he's a very articulate man. He's, he seems to be coming out on all the right issues. He seems to be pushing the climate question very strongly. I mean, I, I do think that they are, um, well, it is an ashram of its own, shall we say. And of course, it, it, it basically is a... What it's a, it's a confluence of of humanity's best intentions, um, and you know the fact that representatives from all the countries are there all the time and can get at least 
connect to whatever degree they all they do, then you know that's a step in the right direction. But I but I must say that when I was an undergraduate, we did one of these model UN events at my university, the University of Kansas, and they all thought that I should be the UN the U.S. ambassador. <laughs> Which I thought was an you know an honor in some respects uh, because you know my my political aspirations, but then when the event actually happened, virtually everybody was coming at me to make deals, <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose that's pretty much what goes on at the UN. But it seemed very crass compared to the idea of building a more perfect world. <laughs> <laughs> so the microcosm might be reflecting the macrocosm. <laughs> you, you said that you came here because you were inspired by the idea of you know large vegetables being the proof of the existence of God. What, what's your your personal beliefs um, around the the growth of this place and and also around the idea of a higher power? Do you believe that you've been guided to come here or guided through life to to do the things you've done? Or? Um, I think I came here under guidance, yeah. I think coming here was an act of guidance. <clears throat> I certainly came here as a part of my spiritual questing. Uh, and I felt as though uh, that quest was being richly rewarded. Um, when I was asked to put on these international conferences, which I was quite early on, I think the first one was in 1976, which would have been two years after I arrived. Um, I often felt uh, like a higher hand was uh, working with me to uh, produce those events successfully. Um, I often have difficulty with what I call nature mysticism. Um, you know, the idea that plants and that nature spirits are be superintended by dwarf, uh, dwarfs and elves and so forth and, and nature spirits. I mean, I've never experienced a nature spirit myself. I have spoken to a number of people who claim they have. I don't doubt their experience. Actually, I do doubt it to some degree. But <laughs> <laughs> But I listen respectfully, or try to at least. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I do think the place has been guided. Yes, I do think the place has been guided. And I... But I also will confess to, um, you know, beginning to entertain thoughts like, have we, has Fintorn done its thing? Has it served its purpose or not? I mean, I think we have served the purpose of making people aware of the subtle worlds and how they can directly affect the world in which we find ourselves on a material plane, more material plane. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, the, uh, I think the challenge of sustainability is still here. And I think the world does need to see successful examples of sustainability in action. And I think that's where 
our primary opportunity and challenge now rests. It feels like a, a good point to sort of stop there, unless there's anything else you feel like you want to say or... I think we've covered the waterfront. And I commend you both for your questions and comments. Thank you, Roger. It's been brilliant talking to you in your barrel. This has been our Fintown Barrel, episode number eight. Were you going to say something there? No, no, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Roger.